0: Turn to Acts chapter 3 with me. Acts chapter 3. I actually once saw a uh, title of a sermon on Acts chapter 3, and I, I it came to mind as I was looking at our passage today. Um, the title of the sermon was, A Lame Excuse for Preaching the Gospel. And it's obviously a play on words because it's dealing with a lame man and, you know, Peter preaching the gospel. Um it's obviously a play on words. It's much more creative than me, you know, my uh, the title of my sermon this morning is Acts chapter 3 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 4. So <laughs> nothing nothing fancy, but um, we're looking at a passage today. It's the first miracle aside from Pentecost that we actually see. There's depending on how you count them, there's anywhere from 14 to 18 miracles in the book of Acts. And uh, today is the first one that we actually see. We're going to kind of break this down. Um, More often than not, I usually break down messages into three or four sections. And so today we're going to look at three primary sections of this. The first one is going to be the revealing of the miraculous. We're going to see the actual um, healing take place of this lame man. Then we're going to look at the reason for the miraculous event. And then lastly, we're going to see the reaction to that miraculous event. So as you see, we did some alliteration there. It's about as creative as I can get. Um, the revealing, the reason, and the reaction to the miraculous. So we'll look at that. Let's look at uh, how this uh, miracle today is revealed to us. We're going to read uh, verse uh, 1 through 10 this morning we're going to start with. Let me go ahead and read that. We see now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom, he had used, or whom they had used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So what we see here is actually something that Luke promised from Acts chapter 2 verse 43, or described rather. Look at uh, verse 43 of chapter 2. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. We see the same thing in Acts chapter five, verse twelve, where Luke wrote, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So what we see actually take place today is the first of one of these miracles that Luke told us were taking place. Um, if you want a breakdown of it, there's a total of four healings, two resurrections, four personal libations, which are exorcisms. There's three judgment miracles and one preservation miracle. Paul gets bit by a snake and survives. So it's a variety of things that take place in the book of Acts. Um, we have another four instances with Stephen, Philip, and then um, Barnabas, and even the Apostle Paul. Paul. Um, perform a number of signs and miracles. And so throughout the book of Acts, what we really see is the bulk of the miracles that take place, the healings, the exorcisms, uh, and whatnot, take place through the hands of primarily the apostles, including Paul, who was an apostle untimely born. But then a few others are performed by people like Philip, Barnabas, and Stephen. But generally, it's the leaders. If you remember about um, Philip and Barnabas... And Stephen, they were also leaders within that early church. And so, what we primarily have is throughout the book of Acts, the leadership that God had put in place to help to build the early church were given the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles. Now, we know elsewhere in First Corinthians chapter twelve that um, there were likely others within the church, non-leaders necessarily, who were also given abilities to perform signs and, and wonders and other things. But what we primarily hear about are the leaders within the gospel or within the uh, book of Acts. Now, this particular miracle here takes place in a very important place. It takes place at the temple. Peter and John are headed up to the temple. It's um, during the afternoon prayer time. Along the way, they encounter a man who's crippled. That says, all the way since birth, he's sitting at the gate. People would take him there, put him there. He begins to beg for alms, which is basically money. Notice that the way that this describes him here is he's pretty much without hope. He has no way to care for himself. He can't even make it to the gate by himself. He has to be carried there by others. And his religion is offering him very little assistance. Aside from maybe the kindness of a few strangers who toss a coin to him here and there. So this man is relatively hopeless. It kind of reminds us of this young man that, or old man, I don't know what his age was here, but that Dustin shared with us this morning. Not a whole lot of hope there. The only thing he's got going for him is maybe he can beg for a little bit of money to buy some food or whatever. What he does receive, though, is what's shocking about this passage In the name of Jesus, he receives a miracle beyond his imagination. Now, it wasn't just the ability to walk, because what this describes is actually new life and a new relationship with his heavenly Father. If you look at the way this text kind of plays out here, you notice that it describes him in verse 8. If you go back down to, say, verse 8 and 9 here, it says, "...with a leap he stood upright and began to walk." something he's not been able to do since birth. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, and here's part of the clue, and praising God. And it says that again, verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. This wasn't just that this man was given the ability to walk now. It symbolizes this new relationship he has now and how he understands the Father. You know, with, with what Dustin shared here and talking to this, Gentlemen, you know, I, I can't necessarily make you feel better, but we can talk about Jesus, and maybe the Lord can do that for you. If this man at some point that Dustin described begins to think through his spiritual condition and begins to realize at some point that he is in as much need spiritually as he is physically, that will dramatically and drastically change his relationship, not just here on this earth physically, but in his relationship with his Heavenly Father. That will teach him something about how his Heavenly Father cares for him. And so here's this man who was raised Jewish, especially in a, in a way that was somewhat legalistic and under the these oppressive rules of the, the spiritual leaders of the time, Jesus basically called them whitewashed tombs and, and wolves. What this man had been exposed to was religion, and the best his religion can do for him is to drop him off at the gate. He's not even going in to worship because most of the most of the, the, the lame were considered not worthy of going into the temple. It really wasn't an Old Testament command. Some have tried to say that it is, but it has nothing to do with that. But the the way the Jewish population understood it is the lame weren't supposed to go in and worship. And so the best his religion could offer him was to sit outside the gate and beg. Can you imagine being a... Somebody who loved the Lord and you walk up and you basically take this guy and you drop him off at the gate and you go in yourself. And so what this man experienced here was not just this new physical life of being able to walk, but a new spiritual life as well, a whole new understanding of his heavenly father, all because of this miracle that took place. And so we have this amazing revealing of the the supernatural power of God You notice too about this is that it was done in a way that was in plain sight. It was at the temple. It was in front of all the people, all the religious leaders. There was absolutely no way they could deny it. It was all there out in the open. In fact, the way that people respond, this is the dude that we used to see at the temple. Look at him now. It says that they're all in awe as they watched him leaping and praising God. There was no way that it could be denied. You know... uh, one of the things that um, I often find myself doing is tuning in just if I've got a couple of minutes to kill and maybe I'm finishing my stretching at night or something. I'll flip over to one of the many religious channels on, um, on some of the religious... Or the religious shows, and occasionally I'll see somebody like a like a Benny Hinn or somebody going through their healing routines and whatnot. And I kind of laugh when I see him knocking people over or pushing people over. It reminded me of a guy by the name of Todd Bentley, who's out in South Carolina. Um, he was referred to as the punching pastor because the way that he would heal people was to physically punch them or to kick them, somewhat violently. And I noticed he was in the news the other day because he actually was removed from ministry, not because of that, but because of some sexual morality. Well, he's now back saying that the Lord has been visiting him with angels and gave him a 25-year plan to be back in business now. And um, so oftentimes what you see with stuff like this is the healing or the the things that are being done are, are more about the individual. And we know much of that is a sham. Much of that is, and it just, it doesn't really ultimately help people. And I kind of look at that, and I look at some of those things that today get sold as popular healing or whatnot by men like him. I'm not suggesting everybody's like this, but certain men that we see that sort of are on the television, or we see them out doing stuff like this, and much of that is just artificial. It's not like what we see here, where it's something that absolutely cannot be denied. There was no glory in this for Peter and John. They weren't out with the intent to heal this particular day. They were going to the temple to pray. There was no money that exchanged hands here. In fact, even though the guy needed money, nothing changed hands. And so it's very different than what maybe what we see today in some circles. This was an undeniable, miraculous event. And again, I'm not saying that doesn't happen today. What I'm saying is that so much of what we see today isn't like what we see here. And so this man was given new life. He was given the ability to walk, but he was also given a new spiritual life, a new understanding of his heavenly father. I wish we could do some follow-up with this guy. Meaning, where was he five years, 10 years, 15 years later? You know, I would imagine that he was a different man, knowing what Christ can do. And if he did this for him physically, imagine what he would have done for him spiritually. Now, as important as this miracle was for this particular man, the story doesn't really end there because most of the time, miracles like this have a much bigger purpose. And so I want to just do a little bit of theology here, if I could, as we work our way through this. I want to look at the reason why this was done. Now, from a general standpoint, when it comes to miracles, signs, and wonders in the Bible, as a general rule, they're used to authenticate not only god 's messenger, but the message there 's almost always some message attached to the miracle. it is normally the gospel okay and so one of the things that miracles do in the, in the New Testament is that they authenticate the one who 's there doing it and the message that he 's come to bring and so we have the authentication of the messenger and the message itself and that 's in a general sense so every miracle has that purpose if you will to authenticate the message and the messenger. Um, think about Moses. Go back to uh, let's see Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 you are going to be familiar with this. Starting in verse 1, then Moses said, "What if they do not believe me or listen to what I say?" This is where God has told is or told Moses to go back to the Israelites. Go back to the Egyptians and and rescue God's people. What if they don't listen to me? Moses said. That's a good question. You know, he's going up to the Pharaoh, right? The Lord has not appeared to you is what the Jews were going to say to him. So the Lord says to Moses, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand in his bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and when he took it out, behold, it was restored to the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the second sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water in which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am now slow of speech and slow of tongue. What was the point? Basically, Moses was given the ability to perform these signs to validate himself as being there under God. In other words, as he would go to the Egyptians, as he would go to Israel, he says, Lord, don't believe me? And he says, you're going to perform signs and miracles in front of them so that they might believe that you are doing this by the God of Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they were, were a way to authenticate not just Moses as the messenger, but also the message that Moses would deliver, which involved the ten plagues, but also the name of the Lord I am has come to rescue you. We're leaving here. We're going to the land of Canaan. All that Moses came to preach and teach would be authenticated by the ability to perform the signs in the miracles of Rome. We see the same thing with the, the prophets of the Old Testament. Think about Elijah. Anybody remember? Twice Elijah called down fire from heaven. One time was to consume 400 prophets. You think they believed after that? I know at least the 400 did. And so signs like this, or miracles... The ability to do these supernatural things were given to authenticate the message and the messenger. Jesus did miracles for the same purpose. In fact, you can just look this up on your own, but Luke chapter 7, verse 22. John chapter um, 3, verse 2. Jesus specifically states that he would do miracles specifically to authenticate himself as God's son, but also the message that he was now preaching to them. We see the same thing with the early church. That's what these miracles in the book of Acts are about. They're authenticating the apostles as messengers of Christ, but also the message that they're preaching. And we can see why that would necessarily help. You know, if if um, Dustin had the ability when he walked up to this man to basically say, I'm going to tell you to walk in the name of Jesus Christ, and if God had given him the ability to do that, and this man all of a sudden can stand up and can walk, maybe... You might then listen to the spiritual message as well and say, there's something different about Dustin, and there's something different about the message. Now we'll see a little bit later that it doesn't guarantee, just because you see the miracles, that you'll believe, but that's the purpose. They're a way to authenticate, and I I praise God for that. You know, people always talk about blind faith. There's nothing blind about what we believe. We have historical evidence to what we believe. We see changed lives. But we also have the evidence of miracles and signs and wonders performed by those that, that God has used to deliver the message to us, especially within that early church. And think about how important that might have been. You know, we sometimes wonder, why don't we see as much of this today as maybe we do in the book of Acts? Well, first thing you have to remember is that we see 14 to 18 episodes in the book of Acts that covered a span of 30 to 60 years. We don't know how how common it was to see it during that early church. We just know that it did happen. Okay, We do see miracles today that take place. I was listening to, a, to um, Francis Chan not too long ago, who's recently basically left his church here and decided that he wants to be a missionary, and he's gone out into parts of the world where they are just begging to hear the gospel, and he said he was shocked because he actually has seen things take place that he could only describe as supernatural events. And this is a man who is in the past sort of denied that that existed today. But he's like, I'm a bit shocked. But he's in a place where people are begging to hear the gospel. And he said, maybe that's why it doesn't happen in America quite as often. God didn't leave us just to be blind and to accept things. I mean, he, he knew that the Jews, especially in this early church, the first few years as they're preaching to the Jews, he knew the kind of pushback and the slack that they would get from the leadership. And we see that in this book. And so by seeing signs and wonders by the apostles, all of a sudden, who do you think they're going to trust? going to trust these leaders over here walking around in their fancy clothes who have oppressed us for years who don't even believe in resurrection or all of a sudden these men who are fishermen they're uneducated and they're preaching these amazing words and oh by the way look at the people that have been we're going to see i think in a week or two there were so they would drag people out to the temple and there were so many people there that they would have to leave them in the streets. And people were lining the streets just so that as Peter would walk by, his shadow would fall upon them. And they would be healed. God knew what he was up against, if you will. And so the signs and the wonders and the miracles were designed to authenticate what was going on. And so that's exactly what we see taking place here. And so that's, that's what happens in a general sense when we see miracles. But you know what? There's something else. And this is, I think, critical to our passage today. When it comes to individual miracles... There's often a more specific purpose to that specific sign or wonder or miracle or healing. And we see three of those today. So let's look at this particular miracle with this particular man and see what the purpose was. Because while there's a general purpose of using it to authenticate the message and the messenger, when it comes to the specific individual miracles, they have a specific purpose generally as well. And you see that throughout the book of Acts. And so let's look at this. There's three of them that I could identify. One of the purposes that we see in this particular uh, miracle is that it was to glorify Christ and exalt his name. Two pieces to it. To exalt Christ, or to glorify Christ and to exalt his name. Look at verses 11 through 12 of chapter 3. While he was calling to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, at the so-called portico of Solomon. That's a giant area. We're going to talk about that, I think, in a week or two. Um, the, The portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? In other words, Peter says, this isn't us. We didn't do anything special here. Quite opposite of what I see sometimes on some of the channels on Directv. You see, Peter starts by denying the misconception, or the, this misconception that he and John had healed the man by his own by their own ability or power something they possessed. But then look at what he does in thirteen. It says, "The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus." And so we find our first clue there. God healed the man through Peter and John in order to glorify his son, Jesus Christ. It was all about Jesus Christ. He was the one that would receive glory, not Peter and John. They would push back on that. But you notice he says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's actually, I think, important here because that phrase is used to refer to God as the God of promise. Something Peter reflects on repeatedly in the verses that follow as he preaches. And so, Peter says, you know, it's the God of Abraham, this, this God of the promise. And we'll see what he, that he promised what's taking place here long ago in the scriptures. Notice too, he says, he refers to Jesus here as his servant Jesus. That's a messianic phrase referring back to Isaiah chapter 53. At the end of Isaiah 53, the Lord said, therefore I will allot him, Jesus, a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. In other words, the popularity, if you will, the royalty the influence that Christ would have, he would raise him up and he would magnify Christ. It's a part of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 and that's why Peter refers to him here as the servant Jesus. He did this. So the God of promise has glorified his son Jesus Christ, the servant from Isaiah 53. He has raised him up. He has glorified him up. That is what this miracle is about. All attention is now on Jesus. It wasn't about the man they're all looking at the man in awe and Peter is saying no look at Christ who did this the Lord is glorifying him it's by him don't look at the man look at Jesus we're also told that he did it to exalt the name of Jesus isn't this and this is important too jump down to verse 16. He says, and on the basis of faith, in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all. Notice he mentions the name of Jesus there twice. Verse 6, he actually says, in the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. Verse 16, he says, on the basis of faith, in his name. It's in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. We know that what Peter's talking there about, faith in the name of Jesus, is a reference to faith in Christ himself. It's synonymous. Later on he says, and the faith which comes through him, through Jesus, has given him perfect health. And so this idea of faith in the name of Jesus is another way of saying faith in Jesus himself. But why is it that we see this emphasis on the name. We actually see that in other parts of Scripture. The importance of the name of Jesus. Why do we call him Jesus and not something else? Well, it has to do with what the name represents. Literally translated, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. When the angel of the Lord told Joseph and Mary, or told Joseph that Mary was pregnant, he told him to name the child Jesus. Why? because it's all about Yahweh saving. That's why Jesus came. So he named his son, that, so that when we hear the name Jesus, we think God saves. Plain and simple. So the name of Jesus is significant because it represents not just the man Jesus, but the promise God gave to save his people. It's the most significant name in all of history. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. You know this passage. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't stay in heaven. But he emptied himself, meaning that he set aside certain the use of certain attributes. He didn't get rid of attributes, divine attributes. He simply set aside their use By taking on the form of a bondservant, human humankind, and being made in the likeness of men, but being bound or being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now look at the rest of this. For this reason also God highly exalted him, glorified him, and bestowed on him here it is, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The most important name in human history is five letters. Jesus. And so the first purpose we actually see here for this specific miracle was that God was going to use it to glorify His Son, Jesus Christ, and to exalt His name and make His name known. Every one of these Jews that heard Peter say, this man walked because of Jesus, would have understood the meaning of that name. Because in Hebrew, names meant something. Not in English, we kind of go, you know what, let's just... You know, come up with some weird fancy name. We'll take three names, cram them together because it sounds really cool. You know, I was named Michael John after my dad. Now my dad's name is John. Middle name is Michael. They don't want me to be called Junior. So they didn't name me John. They named me Michael John. There's some meaning there, but nobody would necessarily know that. But in Hebrew, your name meant something. It communicated something to those around you. And so when the Jews heard the name Jesus, and Peter said, Jesus is the one who did that, they knew what that was. And the name is important. And so the first purpose we see in this specific miracle was to glorify Jesus Christ and to make his name known. You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, there was that Jesus dude who died on a cross. You know, that heretic that our leaders put to death. And all of a sudden now you're seeing somebody walk and you'll see this kind of stuff happen repeatedly in the book of Acts. And the names associated with that, now it takes on a whole new meaning, Jesus saves when you see what he's doing for people, which might explain why at Pentecost 3,000 people get saved and after this event another 5,000 possibly get saved. So that's the first purpose we see here. The second purpose we see in this specific example here is that it provided an opportunity to actually confront the Jews. I think this is important. If we look at um, verse 13 again, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disavowed in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Basically, what has he done here? What Peter does is he now confronts the Jews. This is something we find repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. There's at least four instances where these sermons are a direct confrontation of the Jews. And so the second reason for this is it provided an opportunity to confront those one who had put Jesus to death, but those who he specifically came to. Notice he says they had delivered him up. It says that they disowned or denied or rejected him. In fact, Peter used that word twice. They disowned him before Pilate, even when Pilate wanted to hand him back, not kill him. They said they disowned the holy and righteous one, and notice the irony of that. It says that he denied or that they disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer. Direct opposite of a holy and righteous one, right? Peter's filled with irony here. Notice it says they put him to death. It refers to him here as the prince of life, or, or another way to translate that is author of life, which I think is probably more appropriate. Um, there's some, con, there's some debate as to whether or not we should translate the Greek there as prince of life or author of life, but most scholarship has a tendency to favor author of life, meaning that. Jesus was the one with whom life originated. Go back to the book of Genesis, and we see the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved with creation there. Um, we're told that Jesus Christ, in Colossians what chapter 1, says that everything came into existence through him, by him, for him. I believe that when we're told that God breathed life into Adam, that was likely Christ, the Godhead. He's the author of life. And they put him to death. Notice the irony there? You put to death the one with whom life originated. Not just physical, but spiritual. So the second purpose of this specific miracle is that it gave an opportunity now to confront them. Peter and John have the undivided attention of their audience. Sometimes miracles do that. They're designed to get attention. God's trying to wake somebody up. Pay attention. Look, watch. I'm speaking. And so now they've got the undivided attention of the very ones that Christ came to save. That's the second purpose. There's a third purpose that I found here. In spite of all this, In spite of the fact that they had rejected him in many respects repeatedly, because through parts of his ministry and through his crucifixion, and now even afterwards in many respects, in spite of all that, this was now another opportunity for forgiveness and restoration. So it not only was used to glorify Christ and exalt his name, not only was it to provide an opportunity to confront but it was yet one more opportunity to give restoration and forgiveness to God's enemies. Isn't that a pattern we've seen? We've studied through the Old Testament for as long as you guys have known me. Um, we've made a point of, of going back to the Old Testament. I had somebody um, uh, mention the other day, I think I, I shared it with you, the manager of Mount Kansas mentioned a viewpoint from the Old Testament of God of wrath and judgment. and That's oftentimes what people... See, but the Old Testament is not a God of wrath. He's a God of grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness. There's more of that in the Old Testament than there is the other. And so what we see here is this third purpose of this particular miracle is to provide the Jews with another opportunity for forgiveness and restoration. Look at verses um, 17 and 18. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Notice that Peter, and ultimately the Lord, recognized that they acted in ignorance, he says here. Simply means that they didn't fully comprehend what they were doing when they killed their Messiah. This is something Jesus indicated on the cross when he looked out at the audience, or audience at the, the crowd as they were watching him, die up there on the cross. And what did Jesus say to them? Smite him Lord! No, he said, Lord, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. The same thing that uh, Stephen says when he's being stoned. Lord, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. There's this ignorance. Their actions, however, did not thwart the Lord. They attempted to put him to death, but it was only so that the Lord could raise him up. Something we have to keep in mind about ignorance here is that um, it may explain actions, but it never explains away the guilt. You know, we, we're familiar with the American idiom ignorance of the law is no excuse. Um, look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, just two verses, 30 through 31. This is Paul preaching. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, and by signs and wonders, I can add in there. So the Lord overlooks ignorance for a time. But ultimately, will stop overlooking the ignorance and will call men to account. And so Peter, as he looks out at this crowd, says, All right, you're all a bunch of ignorant fools. You didn't know what you were doing. But now it's time to call you to account. And so... The Lord gives them a second chance here. Notice that it's through repentance, though. Look at verses 19 through 26. Therefore, repent. Doesn't that parallel what we just read? Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed to you, or for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke with the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophets shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successor onward also announced these days, meaning the days that we're in right now, is what Peter's saying. They prophesied about these days, gentlemen. Right here, what you just saw with this lame man. These miracles. This is all what they prophesied. These days. And it's time to repent, is what he's saying. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and to all your seed, all the families of this earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So just like Paul says in Acts chapter 17, that God is overlooked in the times of ignorance, but now is going to call all men to account to repentance in Jesus Christ, is what Peter says right here. Notice Peter promised them three things. First, their sins would be wiped away, he says, if they repent. He says that there would be times of refreshing that would come in the Lord's presence. That's probably a reference to the restoration of all the promises given to Israel and the, and the, the building of the new temple and bringing about uh, Christ on his throne through all of the, the thousand year reign that will come about. The times of refreshing will come. And then lastly, the restoration of all of that. And so Peter promises them these three things if they just repent after seeing what they see. And he says that's what the Lord has promised through Moses. Through the prophets of Samuel and every one of them following after him have all promised this. What you're seeing today is what they promised. But it wasn't just the miracle, it was the need to now repent. Peter's audience was the intended recipients of what the prophets had promised. And he's essentially saying, This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been waiting for. They were descendants of the prophets, it said. Notice he tells them, he says, it was for you that God raised up Jesus. He raised him up so that he might turn you from your wicked ways. Basically, he says, it's not too late. So after you saw him walk this earth for 30 years as you saw the miracles and the signs and the wonders Jesus performed, as you rejected him, as you called for him to be crucified, after the witness of the resurrection where he walked this earth for 40 days and you heard rumors and stories of this Jesus having been raised from the dead and you still rejected him, now you see him raise up this man and he's able to walk and praise God. What are you going to do? And so the third purpose of this specific miracle was so that God might give them yet one more opportunity before judgment. In many respects, this is your last chance. The times that the prophets promised when God would overlook your ignorance up to a point and bring judgment, we're in those days. This is what it all has led up to, folks. And so the purpose of this Miracle here included this one last opportunity to give salvation, forgiveness to those who had rejected him. That is an amazing God, isn't it? How many of us would would have said, forget it, man, we're done with you. We see that pattern throughout the book of Acts, is that and I would encourage you, as we see this play out, as we look at these different miracles, ask those questions. You know, what's the, what, is there a specific purpose with this? What is this particular miracle doing here in this particular passage? And you'll see a very similar pattern, that each one has a specific purpose. Now, the last thing I want to just touch base on here is the reaction to the miraculous. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. Just read those. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. These are the really important people. The ones with all the fancy clothes. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So we think about this. They had just witnessed this guy that they know has not been able to walk for, what, 40 years or whatever? He's now standing up, jumping up and down, praising God. In addition, they had already seen Pentecost, so they saw the whole Pentecost thing. Now they see this, and they're bothered by theology. Oh, it doesn't matter. Theology. We know there's no resurrection of the dead. Yeah, we see what they did over here. In fact, we're going to see in another passage. They're like, we can't deny it. In fact, they even call it a genuine miracle. It's another one that takes place. And even with that, they're unwilling to accept. And so we have two reactions to the miraculous here. One of them is outright rejection. In the face of absolute proof and being able to physically see it themselves, they reject it. That's one possibility. Second possibility, 5,000 people go, okay, we get it, in spite of their leaders. Now, we don't know here if this is an additional 5,000 or if it's another 2,000 on top of the 3,000 from Pentecost. doesn't really matter. Just thousands of people accepted it because of what they've seen. That's pretty much what we see today in many respects. I was reading some something, Amy posted this this morning, it was from a Not the Bee article, and it was about, um, I, I, apparently, was it yesterday, was the de-transformation day for people who had claimed to be transgender or other things um, at some point in their life, but then came to realize that, that, that it was... Not true and so they detransitioned. Many who have gone through and had parts of their bodies removed and, and all kinds of other stuff. And so yeah, it must have been yesterday or the day before was their day. And so there's a Twitter hashtag that they would post. And I'd heard about that in the past, but I was reading through a bunch of the, the tweets at these people and I was struck by a couple of them who had basically said, you know, when I transitioned I was praised. But then when I detransitioned, it was the direct opposite nobody's celebrating me coming to realize who I really was, meaning I was a girl, I thought I was a guy, now that I realize I'm really a girl, nobody celebrates that. And I just thought to myself, you know, how, how is it that so oftentimes we see things and we can just reject and deny the reality of something? And so here we have many of these folks who have said, boy, I was pressured into it, or I just... I was manipulated into it or I was made to think this because I was lied to or whatever. And now that they come out and they say, no, that all gets rejected. I, You know? And that's kind of what we see here with the miraculous. The world around us can see lives changed by Jesus Christ. but They often will still reject the message of the gospel. So there's only two options. Either accept it or reject it. And we see that in this Passage here. So, what do we do with this? A couple of takeaways. In a general sense, miracles always serve to glorify Christ and exalt his name. That's the bottom line, and that's what we see here today. So, like it was back then, it should be the same today. When it comes to miracles that we may witness today, they should always serve to glorify Christ, not the individual. They should always be associated with the name of Jesus Christ second takeaway is that miracles generally have a more specific purpose, and depending on how you count them, again, there's maybe 18 in this book here, they always serve as a catalyst. And what's interesting is in the the book of Acts, they almost always serve as a catalyst for the gospel, not just to help somebody, not just to benefit somebody, but it's always associated with the gospel, and so it should be the case today. And that was, again, I want to call him Jackie Chan, but Francis Chan. That's been his experience. And this, um, this is not an endorsement of, of Chan. There are certain things I agree with and certain things I don't. But, but that seems to be his experience now. Is It's associated with the gospel. And that should always be the case. Sometimes they're used to deliver people. Sometimes they're loo- used to encourage believers. You know, Paul, when he got bit, I'm sure it was an encouragement to him when he survived the snake bite. But it was also to serve as a witness to those around him. Sometimes they even serve as warnings to believers. We have a couple of those miracles in the Bible, too. Ananias and Sapphira, that was a warning. And so we have, we have these individual specific purposes for miracles. But again, they're almost always associated with the gospel. They're always to glorify Christ. They're always to exalt his name. Never about the individual, whether it's the one being healed or whether the one performing the healing last thing i want to point out here is that witnessing and believing in miracles doesn't save anybody simply believing a miracle admitting that it was real doesn't save anybody what saves there's no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved i know people who believe in miracles that don't believe in jesus christ in fact i mentioned before there was a, there's a A gentleman that um, has done a lot to help the understanding of, of biblical events in the Old Testament and the evidence for them, who completely rejects the message of the gospel, but he looks at the Old Testament account of what's happening with the crossing of the Red Sea and a bunch of this other stuff as God intervening in history. You can believe in a miracle without knowing Jesus Christ. The miracles are just a means to authenticate the gospel. Can't just believe in the miracle got to believe in the name of Jesus Christ